Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 96, The Spanish Civil War. When Nazi Germany and fascist Italy assisted General Francisco Franco in overthrowing the Popular Front government of Spain, little did they know it would end with them joining forces and forming the Axis in 1936. And though Germany contributed less than Mussolini, the Nazi leader would benefit much more than his future partner. Der Fuhrer would use this conflict to attempt to drive a wedge in between Britain and France, both who never really tried to call out Hitler on his Spanish adventure. But more than that, as the eyes of the world focused on Western Europe, Hitler would use this diversion to gain territory in Eastern Europe. And until late 1939, this worked out well for the German leader. The civil war in Spain that started in July of 1936 had complex origins and was a long time in coming. King Alfonso XIII had encouraged a military dictatorship since 1923. The idea being a single leader at the top could cut through the corruption and get things done. Yet the progress they all hoped for never materialized. The economy never took off. The people were starving and had no access to jobs, good paying or otherwise. By the municipal elections of April 1931, the people who could vote let their king know of their displeasure. They wanted him out, the dictator out, and a democratic republican government in. In response, King Alfonso XIII abdicated the throne and the royal family left the country. Thus was born the Second Spanish Republic. The new government's first job was to draft a constitution. At the time, the representatives were supported by the labor unions and, up until now, the illegal anarchist movement. There were a few communists who looked up to Stalin and Trotsky, and though they were few, their voices were heard by many. But through the tumult, the new constitution was completed, which focused on proportional representation and a multi-party system, as there were many different blocks of interests, all this based on the French Third Republic. As the new left-leaning government got to work, and their power had been a long time in coming, they focused on weakening the Roman Catholic Church, reducing the size of the influential army officer corps, and, for the people, recognizing collective bargaining. The government tried to go further with serious land reforms, but they were stymied by a combination of opposing groups. As if those of the political right were not angered enough, the new representative government granted regional autonomy to the Basques and the Catalans. It was better than going to war, but this move was seen as a weakness by many on the right certainly the officer corps. They desired the return of a strong central government and had, in fact, a plan for its return. Figuring their time had come, with the supposed debacle of giving in to the Basques and the Catalans, some army officers tried to bring about a coup in August of 1932, but as they had few supporters, their movement collapsed. Still, there are many paths to victory. Though the brute force approach didn't work, it was a sign that some were not happy, and that turned out to be true. 
the next year's elections of November of 33 saw a right-wing victory. By 1934, it was apparent to all in Spain that there was not going to be any negotiations from either side. The peasants wanted some protection from the influential as well as land, and some say, in the government. The church, the army officers, and the landowners wanted all their power back and not to share it, for that is the whole point of amassing wealth, to have access to power and to perpetuate their way of life. It has ever been thus. But through this tension, the last pieces were put in place to bring about civil war, in some form. Small property holders, probably not that far removed from once being landless, had some sympathy with the less fortunate, but the intensity of the left-red or communist rhetoric frightened them. As for the sons of the landed gentry, they in wanting to make sure that a good life was in their future, once their parents passed away, joined up with the radical military right of the fascist movements. The one that stood out in 1933, when Mussolini was already on the international stage, and Hitler had come to power in January that year, was the Falange Española, actually started that very same year. But to turn it on its head, this already chaotic political climate, there were those who wanted to bring the monarchy back, called the Carlists. They did not want Alfonso back, but another king. Going head-to-head with the Carlists were those who supported the former king, and most of these conservatives were made up of the church and the army. In general, the entire political right, who told Britain, America, and France of their fears, believed it was just a matter of time before something akin to the revolution of 1917 Russia took over Spain, if someone didn't do something about it, and soon. As stated, the elections of November 1933 brought a rightist coalition of church officials and monarchist sympathizers into power. Very soon, those without influence were abandoned by the state. This brought about a violence-filled strike that fall of 1934. It did not help that some of the rightist officials were found guilty of tax avoidance and gambling, literally with public money. The conservatives held on as long as they could, but the strike brought many sections of the country to a standstill. The government collapsed in December of 1935. This time, the left was better prepared. Getting enough people to the polls in February of 1936, the results gave power to a coalition of liberals, communists, socialists, and anarchists. They were generally known as the Popular Front. The one common thread that ran through the various parts of the coalition was the idea of an amnesty for those who had went on strike in '34. After all, they were instrumental in bringing down the former government. This may not seem like a strong enough idea to hold a party together, but the Popular Front was made up of groups that rarely looked outside of Spain's borders. But they were not unique in this. The various ruling entities of Spain had ignored the goings-ons of Europe for the last century. Though the Popular Front was popular with the masses, It was not a united front. 
The progressives were divided into three sections, and this was mostly due to three men with large egos trying to get everyone to follow them. As for the socialists, some of them wanted reforms. Others wanted revolution. The anarchists only joined the coalition to make sure the political right did not win power. The communists were the smallest party, but thanks to Stalin's experience, they made sure the newspapers quoted them often. As for the Basques and the Catalans, their only concern was their continued independence. Zooming out a bit, though the Spaniards cared little for the outside world, the larger world watched Spain with interest. After all, the British, French, and Americans had huge investments tied up in the country. France and Germany were always courting Madrid, seeking an alliance as their ongoing struggle continued. This left Britain and Italy with their vital interests in the Mediterranean, seeking a comradeship with the country that had to be passed in order to enter that body of water. So, it will come as no surprise that the coalition government, in power only since February of 36, did not show a united front, or at the very least, a minimalist program to push forward, to take the initiative away from the political right. Violence soon broke out, which only escalated, as either revenge was sought, or more and more people realized that this was the storm that had been building for years. Either one was on the winning side, or that was it. There was to be no political compromise. There had been none in years, and there would now be no mercy on the battlefield. Officially, the Spanish Civil War started on July 17, 1936, as army officers of Melilla in Spanish Morocco launched an insurrection. That very same day, as word spread of what was happening in Morocco, the majority of the right-wing officer corps took to battling the Popular Front government on the mainland. However, the officers were the ones to be surprised, as many liberal, communist, socialist, leftists in general, even the Basques and the Catalans, fought back. These groups made up the majority in most cities, and certainly, to a degree, in the countryside. It was the uniformed rebels' turn to be surprised. Still, their actions had destabilized the country. The genie was out of the bottle, which the government found impossible to return to its place. The civil war continued. And to make this battle all that more complex, each side, in loose terms, the Nationalists and the Republicans, had on their respective side a mixture of classes, political factions, and parties. As the mainland officers had been dealt a setback, they needed the Moroccan forces, led by General Francisco Franco, to come to their aid. But that meant crossing the Straits of Gibraltar, something logistically beyond them at the moment. But that was when the Germans or the Italians, or rather the Germans and the Italians, come into the story. Mussolini could not ever pass up the opportunity to be seen as the big man, whereas Hitler would see this as a multifaceted opportunity. Might not this give Hitler's socialist-nationalist air force real-world experience, not to mention drawing the attention of the world 
to Spain and away from Eastern Europe, where de Fuhrer had plans. To be sure, Nazi Germany and the Germany before Hitler came to power had intimate economic dealings with Spain. As Nazi Germany's economy recovered from the worldwide depression faster than France's did, the trade that flowed between Spain and Germany increased. In 1935, Spain sent 120 million gold pieces to Germany, mostly for chemicals and electric appliances. Germany received, besides Spanish gold, iron ore, skins, fruits, pyrites, and vegetables. But more important than all of this was the actual Germans themselves that traveled and worked in Spain. True, there were other foreigners in Spain, but the Germans represented most of this group that was employed. As German influence grew in Spain, German companies began to set up their headquarters there. Before the Civil War broke out, that number rose to 260 German-owned firms. But it was the many Germans living and working in Spain, affiliated with the Nazi party, that brought Nazi influence to Spain's economy and government. And, of course, there had already been an economic relationship between the two countries before Hitler came to power. As early as 1922, Spain had agreed to use German technical knowledge and German workers to build submarines. Both sides were able to add to their navy, the Spanish got much-needed cash, the Krupp arms manufacturing empire got to try out their latest models of subs and bypass the very ban put in place by the Versailles Treaty. The point man for this exchange was Captain Wilhelm Canaris, a career naval officer. Not only was he stationed in Spain during the Great War, but he had visited the country numerous times for 15 years before the Spanish Civil War broke out. Of course, all of this fell through in 1931, when King Alfonso left Spain. It was he who had allowed the Germans in. Still, the Germans, no matter who was in charge in Berlin, had their objectives before them, which were established at the end of the Great War. Assuming another war was just around the corner, the German Navy readied to take on the naval might of France and Poland, as both were to, hopefully, one day, be the victims of a revived Germany. As for the British and the United States, Germany planned on these two to be neutrals. Hostile, perhaps, but neutrals. As for Spain, the various governments of Germany throughout the years in between the wars were hoping that it would serve as a port in any storm. Literally, that Spanish ports would be open to German vessels, at the very least providing food and fuel. This alone would extend the German Navy's operational time at sea. Ironically, before General Franco's representatives came to Hitler in July of 1936, de Fuhrer had given that country little thought. It certainly wasn't in his book Mein Kampf, written in 1925, though it was mentioned in Hitler's second book, The Secret Book, written in 1928. But that was not discovered until after the war. In it, Hitler wrote that Spain, like Germany, was no friend of France, and perhaps, under the right conditions, could be brought on their side. But as the man in Berlin was to find out, 
The devil is in the details. And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 97, War Friends. During the early phase of the Spanish Civil War, little went the way the nationalists wanted it to. Their leader, General José Sanjuro, died on his way back from exile in Portugal. The other nationalist generals leading the fight in the capital of Madrid and Barcelona did not properly prepare or underestimated, the resistance offered up by the Republicans and the common folk. The majority of the rank and file of the Spanish infantry were not on the rebel side. Moreover, as the bulk of the Air Force and Navy remained loyal to the government, the insurgent forces on the mainland were quickly pushed back. It became clear very quickly that General Francisco Franco's Spanish Foreign Legion needed to somehow cross over to the mainland and join up with General Emilio Mola's forces at his headquarters in Burgos, in northern Spain. Mola was now the nationalist leader with Sanjiro's death. With the odds so stacked against them, both Francisco and Mola, acting independent of each other, sought foreign help. Mola contacted Spanish monarchist landowner Antonio Gocoechea, someone who wanted to bring King Alfonso back, and asked him to use his contacts in Italy to procure several transport planes. Meanwhile, during that same week of July 19th, Franco sent sympathetic journalists directly to Rome to ask for planes. Moreover, Franco used his contacts in Germany to put a plea directly before Hitler. As Franco had been the chief of the Spanish general staff the year before the war, he was well known in German military circles. Also, Germany's ambassador, Count Johann von Welcheck, who had spent ten years in Spain before the Civil War, put in a good word with Hitler. The result of all this was that, as early as July 1936, Hitler decided only to deal with General Franco. This despite the fact that the general was not the official head of the nationalists' cause. The four men Franco sent to Hitler were two Spanish officers and two pro-Nazi businessmen. They were in Berlin early on the day of July 25th. After meeting with low-level functionaries, they then met with Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess. He set up a meeting with der Fuhrer, who was currently at the Wagner Festival in northern Bavaria. That same day, the men were sent to Hitler. By 10.30 p.m., they were standing before the German leader. The talk, of which Hitler did most of, lasted for three hours. Yet he did ask some direct questions. What was Franco's chances of winning? Johann Burhardt, one of the businessmen, claimed that the nationalists had everything they needed for victory but air transportation. This could have easily have been challenged, but Hitler believed in Franco's cause and had his own reasons for wanting to help, so believed what he wanted to. 
Bernhardt then kicked the ball into the metaphorical goal by stating that he was so certain that the Nationalists would win. Franco wanted to set up an economic agency to make sure that even though Germany was aiding the Nationalists, it wouldn't use that very help to overtake Spain's economic fortunes. This arrogant bluff, which acknowledged the wolf that Hitler and Nazi Germany was, stroked Der Führer's ego. He agreed to send to Franco, not the Nationalists, 20 tri-motor Junker transports, along with six fighters for escort duty. As Hitler fully intended to help Franco with much more than just these 26 aircraft, a staff was thrown together to oversee the logistics. The way it played out, Hitler gave the nod to General Ermann Göring, commander of the Luftwaffe, who, the day after Hitler's talk with Franco's representatives, gave the nod to General Hermann Wilberg. As such, the assistance to the Nationalists would be dubbed Sonderstab W, or Special Staff W, as in Wilberg, the general. Wilberg currently enjoyed the reputation as one of Germany's greatest pilots and had been an officer of some rank during the Great War. He and the man who had served under him during the First World War, Erhard Milk, got things started by pulling in officers from the Army, Navy, and Air Force. To the casual observer, it would seem that Zondestab W. did nothing more than gather the appropriate material goods to help the Nationalists, and tally the items as they left Germany. But underneath this paperwork, Hitler also had these two men form up a secret German unit that would work in-country and do more than just fly Franco's men around. But not everything was to be carried out by the German military. Zonderstab W. had the Oberkommando der Kriegsmarine, or OKM, Germany's Naval High Command, contact a private shipping company based in Hamburg to secretly send supplies to Spain. All navies used private companies that had the resources to send needed supplies around the world. But here, the Hamburg company would send supplies to German military personnel to another country, fighting on one side of a civil war, something that needed to be kept secret for now. Three days after the late-night meeting with Hitler, Franco's four representatives flew back to Tutan, Spanish Morocco, Franco's current base. Just a few days later, German transport planes followed them and immediately began to transfer Franco's troops to Spain. Just days after this, the SS Usaramo from the Hamburg Shipping Company set sail from Hamburg to Spanish Morocco. On board were 85 Germans. They were being led by Major Alexander von Schiel, a World War I veteran. Their job would be to maintain the JU-52 transport planes recently sent over. They, the planes, were nicknamed Iron Annies for their durability. Operation Feuer Zauber, or Magic Fire, a name picked personally by Hitler from Wagner's music, was underway. However, a month had passed since Franco's men had been deposited in Spain, and yet there was not a nationalist victory. Franco's determined soldiers were winning victories, 
but those allied against them were too numerous to be wiped out, only after a few contests. So on August 28th, Hitler gave his fighter pilots, few though they were, permission to engage the enemy. Another went by, and still, victory eluded Franco's forces. So, in late September, Hitler launched Operation Otto, which would see supplies of tanks, flak, and radio equipment to be sent to Spain. Moreover, Major Scheele, still based in Spanish Morocco, was allowed to take his Ju-52s and convert them to medium bombers. These were to be escorted by 15 new fighters to be sent over. Scheele's command was growing, as was Franco's ability to strike at and defend itself from the Republicans. Well into October, Hitler had some 800 men scattered throughout Spain, and the reports coming back from those men were enthusiastically received, not only by planning staffs for future use, but by German arms manufacturers and designers. Their goods were being tested in a way no field test could touch. Improvements and augmentations were made on blueprints for future productions. And yet, at this stage, the trials of various weapons or planes were not focused on. It was simply the job of staff officers to send observers to any conflict that could gain them knowledge. With that last part in mind and the Civil War dragging on, Hitler decided on his largest escalation thus far. In late October, it was decided to send the Legion Condor, comprising 3,786 men, 37 officers, and 92 new planes to enter the fray. It was commanded by General Hugo Sparrow and was to be autonomous, yet answerable only to Franco. Its orders were simple. Engage the enemy, support the nationalists, and not to come home until victory was achieved. As such, the Legion Condor would be in Spain for two and a half years. The first elements of the Condor participated in combat that November. Even though Hitler was approving more men and equipment to be sent to Spain, they were still relatively on a small scale compared to the wider war. Still, Hitler knew he was violating the 1936 Non-Intervention Agreement drawn up in August of that year. When the fighting had first started, Leon Blum, the Prime Minister of the Popular Front government in France, at first agreed to send planes and artillery to the Republican government. But then British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin and Anthony Eden interjected. The right-wing cabinet ministers of Blum's government caving into pressure from the British, talked their Prime Minister out of interfering in the Civil War. Baldwin and Bloom then joined forces and requested that all countries stay out of the fight over Spain. Their first formal meeting was in September of 36, and eventually some 27 countries agreed to leave the question to the Spaniards. This included Germany, Britain, France, the USSR, Portugal, and Italy. But Mussolini would violate his oath just as readily as had Hitler. As for the other nearby capitals, Hitler closely watched Rome and Paris as he moved into Spain, the former to see if it followed suit, the latter to judge the moral strength of Germany's hated enemy.
When Hitler came to power in 1933, there was not an immediate coming together of the two dictators, despite their shared ideology. Mussolini was aligned with Britain and France in his fear of a resurgent Germany. But that gradually changed as Italy invaded Ethiopia in October of 1935, which caused Britain and France to castigate Il Duce, while Nazi Germany stayed silent. This same process played out again with Italy's attack on Abyssinia. What's more, Germany traded with Italy during all this, which greatly helped the struggling Italy. As the two dictators lowered their paranoia towards each other and gradually promised to support each other, Hitler continued to say nothing of Mussolini's adventures in North Africa, while the Italian leader told der Fuhrer that he would do nothing to enforce the Versailles Treaty in regards to the demilitarized Rhineland. The two were soon arm-in-arm, attacking democracy and communism, and not each other in their respective newspapers. They both also attacked the Popular Front in Spain when it came to power in early 1936, and in France later that year. When the Spanish Civil War broke out, both men helped Franco, but they didn't talk to each other about it. They certainly did not align their programs right away, for the very simple reason that they were both interjecting their militaries for different reasons. Hitler cared little for Spain, or who ruled it, but the country's problems would allow him to widen the wedge between Italy and France, as they both sought to influence that part of Europe. Anything he could do to have those countries at odds with each other would mean they would be less likely to come together against Hitler when he made his move against Poland, or France itself. As for Mussolini, he had spent the last few years trying to cause trouble for Madrid whenever a left-leaning government was in charge, certainly in regards to Spain's relations to France during that time. Ever trying to recreate the Roman Empire, Mussolini wanted to hold sway over the western Mediterranean and the countries around it. As such, Spain was certainly on his list. Throughout the 1930s, Mussolini supported whatever right-leaning or monarchist group seemed to have a shot at obtaining power in Spain, with either cash for their newspapers or guns for their soldiers. He even had an intelligence-gathering office set up in Barcelona in early 1935. Mussolini's main contact was Goy Coachea, the banker-landowner mentioned previously, that wanted to bring back Alfonso XIII. On June 23, 1936, Goyen Coachea used his contacts in the Italian army to get word to Mussolini that the rightists were planning a coup, but Il Duce was busy, finishing up in Ethiopia after a bloody fight. More messages or warnings were sent in early July, but again, Mussolini claimed to be too busy to think about assisting. So when the clash actually started on July 17th, Mussolini was caught off guard. Despite his intelligence gathering, Il Duce was confused as to who the main players were in Spain. He didn't know Franco personally and wasn't sure of Franco's role, nor, for that matter, General Mola, 
Mussolini had heard that Mola had been planning an insurrection since early 1936, but believed Franco had stayed aloof of this probably until the last moment. But now that the assumed leader, Sanjuro, was dead, it was hard to tell who was in charge for the nationalists. Franco sent his journalist representatives to Rome on July 21st, but that hardly seemed to clear things up. It was clear that Franco's experienced troops were needed on the mainland as soon as possible. But when the general's men spoke to Mussolini, they told him that Hitler was to be approached as well. And, well, whoever supported the nationalists first would be remembered when they came to power. All Il Duce had to do was send a dozen planes over, and that would tell Franco who to favor in the future. Oh, the Spanish also said that France was sending over planes to help the Republicans. Yet still Mussolini hesitated. For one, his foreign ministers were loath to get involved, as they would be the ones to explain to the world Italy's actions. And it would cost money. Mussolini's government was hurting economically because of the League of Nations sanctions due to Italy's invasion of Ethiopia. But then, in stepped millionaire Juan March. He was already in Rome, having fled from the Popular Front government back in Spain and put one million pounds in for the first twelve planes. But even then, the nationalists had to request help five more times. But later that month, the planes were sent by Mussolini. As much as Mussolini wanted to be the big man, the big man on the international stage, that was actually the phrase for it, he had troubles right away. Three of his planes would crash land, because they ran out of gas on the way there. Not exactly the makings of another Roman Empire. And though the two dictators did not align their assistance to Franco at first, they did eventually talk, in August of 36. But before then, their propaganda ministers had met and decided to tell the world they were assisting the nationalists to uh, athwart the Bolshevik danger. As in, it would not be good for the world to have Spain go the way of Soviet Russia. Back in Spain, the power vacuum created by the death of Sanjuro was being filled. General Mola had been planning the coup and expected to benefit from it. But he was also expecting a quick thrust and a victory. But that's not what was happening. So when supplies started coming in to help Spain, they were sent to Franco in North Africa. His base was easier to reach and safer. So Mola agreed that Franco would be the point man in regards to relations with Rome and Berlin, and that all supplies would go through him. Mola would just have to trust that Franco would remember who was really in charge. As for the two big men on Europe's stage, the Spanish Civil War and their soon-to-be cooperative dealings there would prove frightful for the world, but certainly for their common enemy, France.